Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Mysteries of the Kingdom, today with a message entitled, The Final Word is Yet to be Spoken. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One of the great gifts that God has given the human race, that is, when he created us uniquely in his image, well, is this awareness all of us have that actions have consequences. I know there are those who act as if the news hadn't gotten through to them. You know, the philosophy that says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, well, that's a prevalent philosophy among us indeed. And in politics, one sometimes wonders whether politicians who spend our grandchildren's money actually think about whether or not they really believe that they can go on unrealistically living in the way they are in perpetuity. That, I think, is part of our problem. When the consequences of our behavior are still some time away, it is possible to simply dismiss it. I like to call this the Hezekiah syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Well, the incident in question happened when King Hezekiah, in a remarkably foolish and arrogant moment, took the envoys from Babylon and showed them his treasure house in Jerusalem. There's nothing of all the astonishing wealth in that city that he did not show them. Remember, I said that actions have consequences. The nation of Babylon was rising in ascendancy, and they were already becoming known for their savagery and cruelty. What would these envoys say when they reported the matter to their king? Indeed, what was Hezekiah thinking when he showed these obviously dangerous people into his treasury? I think the answer is pride. Hezekiah wanted the Babylonians to think he also played in the big leagues. Look at how important and wealthy I am, he wanted to say. But what are the consequences of such an action? So I'm reading Isaiah chapter 39, verses 6 to 8, which are the words of Isaiah the prophet to the foolishness of Hezekiah's action. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. So then that's the Hezekiah syndrome. It's not the idea that actions don't have consequences. Rather, it's the idea that the consequences of my actions are so far off, someone else will have to deal with it. I will escape. And even if I shouldn't escape, since it's such a long way off, I can live for today and let tomorrow take care of itself. That's the Hezekiah syndrome. Here's the kicker. Hezekiah was right. The consequences for his actions were felt a good deal further down the road, long after he had died and a new generation had taken over. He was right. But he was dreadfully and painfully right because consequences were painful. You know, we've embarked upon a study of Matthew 11 to 13, a series I've entitled The Mysteries of the Kingdom. I've made the point that Matthew is a book which was written to demonstrate that Jesus really is the king, the long-awaited Messiah. And Matthew demonstrates this by grouping together a great many of the miracles that Jesus has done. But still, we're left with a conundrum. If he is the king, then why isn't he conquering his enemies as the ancient prophets had indicated the Messiah would do? 
And then in order to deal with this, Matthew, who wants us to understand this aspect of the question, puts together a number of incidents that demand an explanation. The first of these is the imprisonment of John the Baptist. If the great Messiah has come, how can Herod Antipas imprison the greatest prophet who has ever lived and finally, as we know, execute him? How is that possible? And Jesus, knowing the thoughts of the critics who who would immediately assume that John is lacking in faith or all this happened because there's something wrong with John, instead he calls John the greatest man who ever lived. And then he turns to the crowd and condemns them for condemning John. They said, because of John's austere lifestyle, he probably is demon-possessed. And then they said, Jesus, for his obvious enjoyment of life and his willingness to associate with outcasts, that he's probably a glutton and a drunkard. And so there we have the drama that Matthew wants us to see. On the one hand, wicked people like Herod Antipas can imprison God's prophets. That is, strong-arm politics seems to win out over trust in God. And then on the other hand, the prejudices of everyday people who are quick to make judgments, I mean, that also just continues. John had preached repentance, and Jesus had been the long-expected Messiah who would calm the storm and heal the sick and raise the dead, but all things carry on as they did before. Has the Messiah really arrived? And more so, will God allow this present evil age to simply carry on uninterrupted? And I hope you can see that these issues that Matthew's raising for us are are not just issues at the time of Jesus. Well, there are issues as well. You know, for Christians who believe that God has begun to reign in Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, how is it that so many bad things and evil things continue to carry on unabated? Have you struggled with that? Well, of course you have. You've probably prayed, God, how can you allow these things to carry on? And some of us have marveled at the silence of heaven as all things go on as before. And with this as a background, Matthew now inserts an important teaching that Jesus once gave. I'm reading Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, those of you who do serious Bible study might notice that this same teaching is included in the book of Luke, but Luke puts this teaching in a different section. You know, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus appoints the 72 to go into every town and village and to announce the kingdom of God. But, says Jesus, some towns won't accept you, and so when they don't, shake the dust from your feet, he says, and with that, he says, woe to you, Chorazin, and so forth. But here in Matthew, this section is found in relationship to the imprisonment of John the Baptist. So it gives. Well, the answer is actually quite simple. Whereas Luke is a more chronological account of the life of Jesus, Matthew is a more topical account. Matthew gives us true and accurate pictures of the life of Jesus, but then he arranges these pictures not in chronological order, but in topical order. 
That's to say, Matthew is especially interested in helping his readers understand the, the theological significance of what Jesus said and did. And here against this background of how it is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived and yet evil is allowed to continue, Matthew takes us to a moment when Jesus denounced the cities of Chorazin, of Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, for us who read this passage so many years later, we, you know, we live in a different part of the world, so it's very important that we understand these three villages. So let's start with Chorazin. You know, outside of this one reference to this village, Chorazin is not mentioned again, well, in the rest of the entire Bible. But if the archaeologists are right, Chorazin was about a little over three kilometers from Capernaum. Now, I'll come back to why that is so significant, but please remember that only three kilometers away. And then Bethsaida, well, that's also close by. It's probably about five kilometers from Capernaum. But according to John 1.44, well, let me read it. It says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That is to say, three of Jesus' disciples were actually from, yeah, Bethsaida. But we also know that Peter moved. He moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum. And Capernaum had become the, the base of all of Jesus' operations. It was a fishing village located on the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew records, for instance, in, in Matthew 8, verse 16, he says, That evening they brought to him all who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. That is, he did that in Capernaum. That is, in one glorious night in that city, every single sick person was healed. All who were demon-possessed were delivered, probably without exception. That night was a complete night. Not one person was overlooked. And what should that mean? And what did it mean that that day when Jesus healed the paralytic who was lowered down from the roof and, and he forgave his sins? It could mean only one thing. The kingdom of heaven was right then being witnessed or being poured out and ground zero was Capernaum and the nearby surrounding villages, especially Bethsaida and Chorazin. A special thank you to all those who graciously supported the Back of the Bible year-end campaign. Your gift in December is critical to launching the ministry into the new year. It supports the daily program, all of our online and print ministries, and the privilege we have to support Bible teaching internationally, and so much more. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, in doubt, and the entire ministry team here at Back to the Bible Canada, a huge expression of our gratitude. Thank you for allowing this ministry to engage more people in more ways with the truth of God's Word in 2019. Lives are being changed, and you play an important part in all that takes place. If you'd like to continue to support the ministry or would like to know more about all the resources available, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. From Jesus' perspective, to have witnessed his miracles carried with it moral implications. If you saw him healing a blind man, you should consider this and you should repent. Well, why is that? Well, that's because Jesus didn't just heal people. He's also a preacher. 
His miracles should make you listen to what he has to say. When he spoke to people, he told them to repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And then he got down to the details. He spoke about everything from anger to lust to retaliation to giving to the needy and how to pray to trusting God when you weren't sure how tomorrow was going to turn out. He was telling people to turn from the way they were living their own lives and their own lifestyle choices and to turn to God because at this very hour, as he was healing people, the kingdom of heaven had arrived. So do what the king from heaven says. So repenting simply means to change one's way or to change one's way of life. It means to change your mind about everything you've thought or everything you've done, to turn the course of your life into a new direction. It means to be appalled by your own sins and to recognize that that you are not worthy to receive the kindness of God. It meant to see your own life up against God's righteous law and to count yourself as a lawbreaker. And yet, in spite of God's righteous demands, and in spite of the fact that God should have visited you in judgment, instead of that, the kingdom of heaven has come, and in one glorious night in Capernaum, the great king dealt with all the curses of sin by healing not just some, but everyone in that town. And yet, in those cities where he had done most of his miracles, the overwhelming majority were happy to see and experience his miracles but they were just as happy to carry on their life as they had before. They weren't going to change their lives. To them, Jesus is a miracle worker, but not their king, so they will not bow to his demands. And to these people, Christ has three important things to say. The first is that God sees evil very differently than the way they do. See, Tyre and Sidon are mentioned in the Old Testament as examples of wickedness. Amos, Joel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel denounced those two cities for a number of their sins. Just so we get a sense of it, Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities to the north of Israel. Tyre was actually an island adjacent to the coast, and for centuries, these cities, because of their geography, became important trading routes. Ships from all over the world stopped there and traded their goods through those cities on the way to to so many important places. And because of that, these cities became exceptionally prosperous. And because of their wealth, they were also remarkably militarily powerful. But the Old Testament prophets denounced them for their wickedness. And that included Baal worship, selling Israelites into slavery to the Edomites, being pleasure mad, and being completely given over to seeking wealth at the expense of anyone else. And finally, of being completely arrogant. And Sodom, well, they were well known for their lack of any morals, including the vilest sexual depravity. Anyone in Capernaum would have said, you know, we're a lot better than those cities were. And indeed, we're doing just fine. But Jesus is actually saying that the people of Capernaum were more wicked than the people of Sodom. And by the way, that's not new. You know, every one of us, including, I would imagine, most people who are listening to my voice right now, actually grade our wickedness on a sliding scale. So we compare ourselves to people we deem more wicked than we are. And when we do that, we find a great deal of comfort in that. And yet Jesus sees this matter very differently. So think of it this way. Let's say you're having a sexual affair with someone who's not your spouse. And you might say, well, I'm not a prostitute. Or you might even say, at least I'm not married and cheating on my spouse. 
You see, even though you sin, you imagine you're better than someone else or better than most. Or let's say you cheated on your tax forms and you say, well, not a bank robber or an embezzler. You see, your sins are small next to the real ones. You see, we rate ourselves and so we compare our sins to others. Now, here's some fascinating news. So does God. He also rates you against others. And unfortunately, God's rating scale looks very different from ours. His rating scale is based on our willingness to repent. Not, well, everyone sins and mine's not as bad as some, but I see I've sinned and I will turn. See, Jesus is saying that Sodom would have repented if they had seen the miracles that Capernaum saw. Therefore, the wickedness of Sodom is less than that of Capernaum. Let's personalize that. Imagine a person who reads their Bible and prays and listens to sermons and attends the odd Bible study and then cheats on their tax form. Now imagine an embezzler who knows nothing about the God who exists. So compare the two. Jesus says on Judgment Day, one of the great factors that will be considered is how much light you had. God in his judgment views matters very differently than you do. And that's the first disturbing lesson. God views evil differently than we do. Now here's the second. The greater the light, the greater the condemnation. Please don't be confused on what's not being said. Jesus is not saying that Sodom will be fine on the day of judgment because they didn't have the, you know, the privilege of seeing Jesus the way the people of Capernaum did. No, no. Sodom will be judged and condemned. And here's a little secret of God's reckoning. On judgment day, people will be judged because of their sin. Some of us are confused by that. We might say, well, what if they had never any access to the gospel? And the answer is they're judged on the basis of their sins. Well, what of those who have never heard? Well, the answer is they're judged on the basis of their sins. Read Romans 1. Now, here's a truth that's added. Those who know more will be judged more severely. If today you've come under the hearing of the gospel and still you will not repent of your sins, your condemnation is greater. Now, as believers, we take this with a great deal of seriousness. We not only have greater knowledge, we also have the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. See, that is exposure to the message of Christ is life to some, but it is death to others. The greater the light, the greater the condemnation. Now, here's the third disturbing lesson. Punishment in the life to come varies. Some people are punished more severely in the judgment to come than are others. Hell, if you must know, is not equal in its degree of punishment to everyone who enters. No, instead, the punishment of hell is directly attributed to the sins we have committed. But here's the kicker. It's a great sin indeed to turn against the light. Even though Tyre and Sidon were in proximity to Israel and therefore did have access to the God of Israel, yet they did not see the Messiah. And they didn't witness the great miracles and the outpouring of the kingdom of heaven. That's why Capernaum is more wicked. And what's more, Capernaum was completely without excuse, not only because Jesus was among them, But he preached his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, just outside of their town, and almost everyone in the whole town heard it. They knew 
that Jesus said that his miracles were a sign that the kingdom of heaven was among them, and they also heard his call to repent. Here's where the Hezekiah syndrome set in. The people of Capernaum thought, yeah, but surely that's still a long way off. We can see God's blessing has come and we're happy to receive it. But, the, but that repentance thing, well, the judgment to come, if it comes at all, it's, it's still a long ways away. Were they right? Well, I suppose we could answer that question in two ways. First, we might answer it according to Hebrews 9 verse 27. There it says, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And so in that sense, we, we never know when the judgment comes upon us. And given that truth, we should repent immediately, for only the fool counts on tomorrow. I suppose in another sense, however, the judgment is still a far way away. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus announced this to Capernaum, and still the judgment of the kingdom has not fallen on this earth. And for that reason, the Hezekiah syndrome. Perhaps I'll just live and not worry, for these matters are still a long way away. Did you know it was a gift of God that we view matters from a long-term perspective? To relinquish present advantages for the sake of future glory requires an act of faith. But if we fail to do so, if we live only for today and don't consider the future, we need to remember that the final word has yet to be spoken. What will you do in the end? And for that reason, repent, give your life to God, and receive His grace into your life. John, for those that would have more light, obviously there's more potential consequences. So the, the, the question might be then, should I seek more light? Is there benefit to that? Yeah, and uh, you know, we could even add to that. I mean, should we share the gospel uh, with people around the world and, you know, because they may hear of it and then be you know, accountable for more if they refuse it? I mean, there are a number of ways to craft that question. I think we would want to say this. I mean, God has come to reveal of himself and of his truth and of his gospel and what is happening in the world today. So he has come to do that. This is good and, and gracious. I mean, if we should be so hardened that we turn from it, yeah, I guess we could say it was a bad thing that we ever heard in the first place. But the, but the emphasis is not on, you know, leading us to hardness, but the emphasis is opening our eyes and letting us see the goodness of God and what he's about and being filled with wonder because of the glory of God. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in Matthew right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Offering Bible teaching resources that provide relevant biblical truth is at the center of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. This month, our daily Bible teaching program focuses on the expositional teaching of the Gospel of Matthew chapters 11 to 13, entitled The Mysteries of the Kingdom. How is it in a world so out of control that we believe God is in control? It's a mystery, but a mystery revealed in His Word. This series, along with every Back to the Bible Canada resource, is made available free to anyone who would know the truth about God. Every program, article, blog, video, online, podcast, mobile app, or even the Truth in Life magazine is simply free. A goal of Back to the Bible Canada is Bible teaching without barrier. Special thanks to all those who make this possible. 
To know more or to partner with Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.